Specialty Stories, session number 80. Whether you're a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information you need to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week where I have an amazing discussion with a physician talking to them about their specialty, why they went into it, what they like about it, what they don't like about it, and maybe what you should be thinking about if you are interested in it. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Mary McHugh, a urologist who's been out in practice for a year and a half, about her journey to urology, especially as a female in a very male-dominated specialty. We start off the discussion with how she initially became interested in urology. When I was a second year student during my classroom time, our school actually has a six-week genitourinary block. And for the first three weeks of the course, they bring in um, urologists and they do all the lectures. And then the second half of that course is OBGYN. So I was exposed fairly early. They brought in a bunch of lecturers who were highly entertaining. They had great personalities and jokes. And they showed videos of the robot. And I was like, this is awesome. How do I become a urologist? And from that moment forward, I was sort of introduced to this concept of a specialty that I had never even considered, didn't really know much about, but it really sparked my interest in learning more about surgical fields. Well, aren't women supposed to be OBGYN and men (laughs) supposed to be urologists? What what was it that was... First of all, you were like, I never thought about that. Was was there a gender bias in your mind or you just never thought about urology, period? I just never thought about urology, period. And I think there probably, I think there were gender biases in my mind because I come from a family that has a lot of medical professionals. My dad's a doctor and I had sort of always thought, I'm not sure who planted the seed, but I had always sort of thought like women didn't become surgeons. And it sounds really silly and naive looking back on that, but I just sort of always thought that I would do something that was not procedurally based or or medicine based. Um, And I didn't really... I don't know. I guess I didn't experience that bias when I took the course. And I'm trying to think back, and I don't think there really was a single female lecturer in the course, to be honest. I think every single person that came and and talked to us was a man. So it's kind of interesting that I ended up down this path. Yeah. We'll we'll talk more about gender a little bit later. But what was it about? What do you think it was about what you were seeing outside of, ooh, look at that cool technology? I was like, I'm going to go play with penises and urethras and, and all that fun stuff. Yeah. So I think it was really um, a mix between medical management, procedures, and surgery. And I liked the organ system. I liked the anatomy. I liked that you know, some of the problems had to deal with quality of life. You know, I wouldn't want to be in a specialty where 100% of the issues people deal with are quality of life, but certainly if you can make that sort of impact and make um, make it fairly quick, I think it leads to a lot of satisfaction for um, the patient as well as the physician. Um, and there's a lot of different disease processes in, in urology. You know, on a given day, I'm sort of like... Uh, 
managing uh, metabolic issues that are leading to stone disease. And I get to be a cancer doctor and deal with a lot of different type of, of cancer. So it's a wide variety and, and a lot of uh, different things in, in a given day. For a student listening who may not have exposure to, to understand what you mean by quality of life and affecting quality mm-hmm. of life, what, what do you mean by that? Can you give a specific example? Yeah, so let's talk about one of the biggest quality of life issues is overactive bladder or urinary frequency, for example. This would not be considered to be a life-threatening illness in somebody who you know is not having, you know, rip-roaring infections or they're not having some anatomic problem or they're not emptying their bladder all the way and that's why they're having this issue and they're leaking. But it's something that certainly affects how they carry out their daily activities. And some people get so bothered by this. They can't, for instance, if they're a teacher, they can't go through a whole period without getting through, without asking somebody to have to watch the class to pee, or they can't get sleep at night because they're up every 20, 30 minutes and going to the bathroom. So that's a quality of life issue. And there's a lot of things that we can do to help people fix that, that they never even realize until they step foot in your urologist office. Another example is stress urinary incontinence. And this is leakage. You know, anytime there's increased intra-abdominal pressure. So when a man or a woman coughs, laughs, or sneezes, they may leak urine. And again, not a life-threatening condition, but certainly can be ostracizing, can interfere with uh, things that they like to do, running, dancing, horseback riding, hiking. And then there's things that we can do as urologists also to help improve that. So those are some of the, just a few of the quality of life issues that that we deal with on a daily basis. What personal traits do you think lead to someone being a good urologist? I think to be a good urologist, you have to be a good listener and a good communicator. A lot of people come into my office with very sensitive issues, dealing with a very sensitive area of the body. And I think they want to feel like they've been heard um, and understood. Um, And certainly as a woman, you sort of get a lot of people, uh, male patients especially, that are very shy when they come in. Um, But you have to make them feel at ease and make them feel like they can open up to you and talk to you and really get to um, the root of the problem. And I think anybody who is going to be counseling patients on procedures, you really have to uh, be a good communicator. You have to set expectations um, and be very clear about what's happening, um, what the potential risks and complications, side effects, etc. And so that patients really know what they're getting into when they're signing up for surgery. And I think that's not unique to what I do. It's probably anybody who's a proceduralist should have, have that skill. Once your eyes were opened up to the, the surgical world and, and thinking about getting into the operating room and doing procedures, were there any other specialties in the running potentially that, that, that came into mind when you were like, oh, maybe I can do that? So I was kind of all over the place. <laughs> um, before, I guess it kind of precedes my interest in urology, but before I sort of got interested in learning about surgery, I had thought... Um, the first thing I ever wanted to be in eighth grade was a dermatologist. And then somehow that switched to GI because I majored in nutrition in college. Um, and then that somehow switched to PEDS. Um, and then it just became urology after I, I took the course and, and went on my clerkships. And I had chosen a clerkship path where surgery was the um, second rotation so that I would be able to really make 
that decision right away that, you know, did I want to be in an operating room or was this not for me? Um, so I could decide fairly quickly that if my interest actually would, you know, would come to fruition. You mentioned a couple types of patients, a couple types of disease processes that you see. What are, what are some of the most common things that you're seeing day in and day out? Yeah, so um, I already mentioned overactive bladder, stress urinary incontinence. Um, I deal with a lot of, um, you know, voiding symptoms in men, whether they're enlarged, you know, due to enlarged prostate. Um, there's erectile dysfunction that I see. A big one that I see on a daily basis is recurrent infections, especially as a woman, you're going to get those types of consults um, that male doctors don't necessarily see in their practice. Um, I also see a lot of um, chronic bladder pain syndromes or interstitial cystitis. And I think that also lends itself to being um, a woman and somebody who's experienced in um, treating those problems. And I see uh, stones uh, very often and uh, I get sent a lot of uh, hematuria workups, whether it be microscopic hematuria or gross hematuria. So those are probably, I've got one of those on my schedule every day in my office. What percentage of patients that you're seeing are, co are coming to you with a diagnosis and you're just doing a definitive treatment or what percentage are you actually doing the workup and trying to figure out what's going on? That's a really good question um, because of the area that I practice in. So I practice in northern New Jersey and I'm in private practice and I would probably say I would say 70% probably come to me de novo where it's like um, the primaries or an OBGYN will identify a problem and then they'll send the patient to me and say this is what they're referred for. And then I sort of go from there and do everything on my own. I would say the other 30% are looking for um, another opinion or they've had things done or they've seen another urologist. Um, we're probably, I, I can't remember the exact quote that an, another urologist um, gave me, but he basically said, you um, can't turn around and spit without hitting another urologist in the state of New Jersey. <laughs> so um, I get a lot of that. And there's a lot of um, patients that have had, you know, these extensive workups or a lot of testing by somebody else. And they sort of um, have failed to agree with either what, you know, the doctor has diagnosed with them or want to see if I have anything else to offer. So I would say about 70% come in nothing done, and then maybe 30% come with with some things done or a lot of things done. Now, you mentioned that you're in a, a community, a private practice setting. What was the, the decision matrix for you to decide to go out into the community versus staying in an academic setting? Yeah, so that's um, another great question. So there's a lot of influences, um, I think, when you're in, especially in a two-physician um, marriage. So uh, my husband um, came out of his training first, finished his fellowship, and wanted a specific job in a specific location. So he moved um, while I was finishing my last year of residency, um, and then I was sort of left to the devices of the job market. Um, and I had always uh, envisioned myself going into private practice. I think um, it's my personal opinion that it would be very difficult to sort of provide um, training and mentorship to residents when you haven't you yourself been out in practice or out in the world. And I think that would be extremely difficult and daunting as a new graduate and um, something that I didn't want to undertake. So that automatically, I don't think really was a 
um, choice for me. Um, I like the uh, independence of private practice. I'm sort of always like doing things myself. My Some of my favorite times in residency were being on call on the weekends and just being able to like do things uh, at my own pace, uh, at my way. Um, and, you know, sometimes that that's nice to have. Um, but it was the job market and I think my own style and personality that really influenced me to go into private practice. Describe a typical day. Um, so it depends on the day of the week. Um, Mondays for me are full days um, in the office seeing patients. Um, Wednesdays are full days in the office seeing patients. Fridays are um, uh, procedures that we do in the office. So I do cystoscopy in my office, which is looking inside the bladder. I do vasectomy, which is male sterilization. Um, I do my own urodynamics in my office. Um, and then whatever other... Um, procedures, you know, sometimes it's small excisions of lesions, um, little things like that, um, whether it be like, you know, penile or scrotal lesions. Um, and then uh, we have the capability of doing uh, prostate biopsies with ultrasound in my office, which get done on Fridays. And then um, we do some other cysto procedures like injections of Botox into the bladder. Um, Tuesdays and Thursdays are a little bit more variable as a new attending, especially in this area where um, we are very saturated with physicians. It's very hard to get block time. Um, I've been out for a year and a half. I don't have a block. So when I put cases on my schedule, they get added um, to the hospitals that I'm on staff at, um, at whatever times they can do them. So um, like for instance, this week I had um, a half a day in my office on Tuesday and then um, the OR after that because um, they couldn't get my cases any earlier. And then today was the OR. So it, it's very variable, but um, it ends up being three days in my office, three full days, and then, um, you know, whatever surgeries we have to schedule on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then even um, Saturday, Saturday surgery is um, a possibility for me, and it just really depends on my schedule and, and the patient's schedule. So it can be, it's a lot. <laughs> now, when you, when you said because you're a new attending and you're not able to get uh, block time, uh, mm -hmm. for, for somebody who may not know, you're talking about at the hospital for them mm -hmm. to dedicate an operating room for you during certain days, certain times. You just get exactly. the leftovers. Yeah, so it, it can be really variable. Um, if someone doesn't utilize their scheduled time that they have, then I could have a 7.30 start and take over their block. Um, or it could be like, we, you know, we can't fit you in until everybody else is sort of done for the day. Um, so it, it is, it's really variable. And the ways that, just for anybody that is interested, the way you get block time is either um, the easiest way when you're a new physician is to acquire somebody else's block um, or to be employed by the hospital system um, who's running the OR because you'll be more likely to get that scheduled time. Um, and I didn't think that I was going to like that at first. I really like um, knowing where I'm going to be and, um, you know, just a, a regimented schedule, but it, it actually has worked out quite nicely. Now, what percentage of patients are you that, that you're seeing are you actually taking to the OR doing procedures on in the office? Yeah, so um, for me, I think that it's a 
a pretty low percentage. A lot of the consultations that I get sent um, are a lot of non-operative patients. I would probably say about 20 to 25% of all of the patients that I see probably ultimately end up having a procedure, whether it be in the office or um, having surgery. And I think that um, I don't know if there's any data about that or uh, if anybody has ever studied those patterns, but I, I tend to think that mine's a little bit lower, and I think that is a construct of my gender, to be 100% honest. Is that disappointing? Obviously, as, as somebody who likes the operating room and wants to do procedures, <laughs> we, you want to be there all the time. Absolutely. And I think it is a little disappointing. And, um, you know, I've had this discussion with other women. And I, I think I'm fairly early in my career. And I think, um, you know, you sort of gain the trust of your referrals or you um, your name gets out there the more you do operate. And I think that, you know, you, you do the cases that you can and you do the best that you can and you have the best outcomes that you can. And that's how you build your reputation. Um, and I think that, again, being in an area that's um, really saturated and there's a lot of people here, um, it takes time. And I think that's one of the biggest things that um, we all need to realize um, coming out is that it takes time to build and it takes time to um, establish yourself and establish your reputation. And don't believe that, you know, everything you see on Instagram where everyone has <laughs> 10,000 cases their first day. Although, if you were to interview my husband, <laughs> it would be a different story. But, um, no, I think it, it does take time. And I think as a woman, you sort of, um, you you learn that even though the consults may be non-op, those patients, they really need you to. Um, so you just, you find a way to make it a, a part of your practice and, and enjoy it. Let's talk a little bit more about gender since you brought it up again. Why is urology such a male-dominated specialty? <laughs> I think it really just has to uh, do with the fact that, um, you know, the the male urinary system and the male genitals that I think a lot of uh, men traditionally um, were the ones who went into the specialty. And I think it's the perception of a lot of patients that... Um, only males uh, will treat that part of the body or look at that part of the body. Um, so I think it, it has to do with, um, you know, traditionally who was in the specialty. And I think in medicine in general, when you look back, you know, yeah. 20, 30, 40 years, we, you know, look at the way that the gender breakdown was and just inherently, I think it, every specialty was probably more male dominated. And then, <laughs> well, is it, it can... was, it's bad for women to work. Isn't that what we thought before? <laughs> I, that's what we thought. You know? <laughs> we stay at home and, you know, eat bonbons and it's great. <laughs> no, but I think, you know, when you look at the breakdowns and the American Urologic Association releases all the data about the match and women are definitely gaining steam for sure. We're still Good. a little bit more of a, a rarity in the field, um, but there's a lot more women being trained now, which I think is, is great for, you know, male and female patients. What does the call schedule look like as a community practitioner? Yeah, so typically I'm in a very large urology group, um, but in my um, care center, there's only two of us. So um, your call for the practice is going to be split by whoever's in your care center, and that's typically how everyone else does it in our, uh, in our company as well. Um, so it's basically um, every other night for me, and then... Uh, ER call is determined by um, 
by the hospitals. So they, one of the hospitals that I'm at um, assigns ER call a month at a time. So that gets, you know, rolled into our practice call. So it's not too bad. And then um, just because of politics, some of the other hospitals keep the stronghold on the call and don't want uh, outsiders taking it. Um, so that's kind of a, a blessing in disguise for sure. For for call, are there urologic emergencies where it's like you're in the middle of dinner and like oh, I got to go to the operating room now? Yeah, so there's there's a few. Um, the some of the emergencies that um, we see are necrotizing fasciitis of the um, genitals, which is Fournier's gangrene. Um, that's an emergency that's got to got to go to the operating room right away. Um, testicular torsion is another one. Um, you know, you want to try to get those kids to the operating room as soon as possible and detour the testicle. Um, any abscesses, um, the, the most common ones we get consulted for are scrotal abscesses. You know, you want to take care of that right away and make sure it's not something, something more than just an abscess. Um, and then septic stones, um, those usually have to be taken to the OR um, right away or at least be provided with some decompression of the urinary tract. Um, and retention. Um, retention is a, a common one that, that we get consulted for all the time. Um, and oftentimes they call you and patients are super uncomfortable and, you know, you just, you have to go take care of it. So those are, those are just some, I, I know I'm probably missing a few, um, but that's, that's the I'll, short list. I'll never forget being an intern, having a patient who had retention and we just could not get a Foley in him. And we, we had to, to call the urology resident and he's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> And this guy just had so much urine. Like his his bladder, you could see through his stomach. Like it was crazy. Yeah, yeah they can be quite large and quite painful. So as long as you tried first, though. Yes, we, we tried. For, gave you an A for effort. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel, especially as a female, um, uh, do you feel like you have enough time for family when you're on call every other night and, as a urologist? Yeah, so um, I don't have any children yet, uh, but it's it's just me and my husband, and his hours are, are pretty long as well. So we have that time when we get home at night, you know, it's a couple, couple hours, and then um, the weekends. So whatever weekends he's not working, um, you know, we will be with each other then. And it's a lot better than trading, I will say, and it... it you kind of learn the sort of things that um, you can do to minimize your calls or, you know, you make sure everybody's questions are answered or that, that everyone's tucked in. If, you, if you're doing a procedure on a Friday that, you know, everything's taken care of and you don't have to have any worries about that, you know, when you go on call over the weekend. And it's a matter of sort of letting people know that you are available, um, but also telling them or explaining what kinds of things they should be calling you for. So yeah. all in all, I think our patients are really awesome. And when we're on call for the practice, it's not bad. It's, it's just, you know, when you have to admit somebody or somebody ends up in the ER, it's a, you know, patient known to you, septic with a stone, then it can, it can derail you, but you know, you take care of it. What does the training path look like to become a urologist? Yeah. So, um, 
Urology is its own training program. So in general, most urology programs are five years. Some are still six years. A lot of them have gone down to five years. The first year is a general surgical internship. Um, and then it's uh, usually four um, or five full years of urology. A lot of the programs, I think, that are six years do have built-in research year. Um, so just keep that in mind. You know, if you are applying, know how long the program is going to be. Um, but it's all one one program you match into the whole thing um, through the urology match. Um, so it's a, it's a match that um, precedes all the other matches. I think it maybe is after the, I think, military's first. But then the urology match matches in December. So urology so is not through match. the NRMP? No, it's through the um, the American Urologic Association. They ha- they give you like a number, and you and you do it through them. It's its own unique match. Do you know why they keep it separate? I don't know, actually. I mean, I I I guess I think it's a, it's to be honest a self regulation issue. You know, yeah. when you when it's your specialty, you don't want to have so many people. Um, hmm. But that that would be my guess. I I can't really confirm that, but. Yeah. I've heard of that in other other specialties as well. Yeah, interesting. What uh, what's the competitiveness look like for for matching into urology? Um, it's pretty competitive. Um, I think that there are really specific statistics. If you go on, you know, look, just Google the urology match, or go to actually, there's a website urologymatch.com. You can probably find um, a more specific breakdown. Um, but I think. It, there's not a lot of applicants, but I think it's like a 60% match rate for those applicants, but they kind of like break it down. And in general, you have to be pretty high performing um, as a student and um, have have good um, step scores. So it's definitely not, um, not very easy. Um, and I, I think that the process is a little bit different now. You know, I, I am a DO. Um, and a lot of the programs that were traditionally, quote, DO are now in the urology match, um, accredited by the ACGME, so the single, you know, graduate medica- medical education system. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, I think it's, it's probably gotten a lot harder than, than when I matched, um, because it, it was a separate match. I applied into the urology match as well, um, just to apply to as many, uh, programs as possible, um, but they've done away with the programs that are like just AOA accredited. They're yeah. mostly all ACGME accredited at this point. Yeah. Do you see any negative bias towards DOs in the field? I think um, having been on both sides of you know the interview trail and as an interviewer, I think there are a lot of biases, and I. I think, you know, your website breaks down for per specialty, you know, MD versus DO. And I think the data speaks for itself. And Mm -hmm. again, this is another thing about the Instagram world where people are like, no, being a DO, you're equal. And you'll imagine a neurosurgery at Stanford, no problem. (laughs) And, you know, I've seen people walk through the door that are, they're great applicants, they're DOs. And I've literally seen a 280 score on the USMLE. And these kids can't match anywhere. And that's that's just reality. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying, you know, that, that you can't reach for your dreams and, and really go for something that's super competitive. But 
the numbers speak for themselves. And I think that if you're listening to this and you want to have your pick of the specialties and if you're a top performer and in school and on standardized testing, then getting the MD degree is really going to open up all of the doors. It's not to say it can't be done as a DO. I know some DOs who have matched at really elite places have done very well, but that's more of the exception than the rule. What opportunities are there to subspecialize as a urologist? Yeah, so there's quite a few subspecialties within urology, and I'm sure I'm going to miss one of them. But So there's oncology, so there's two-year and one-year fellowships. The two-year ones are generally accredited by the Society of Urologic Oncology. There's female pelvic medicine and reconstruction. There's two-year and one-year fellowships as well. The two-year ones, you can actually sit for another uh, board certification. The one-year ones are not typically accredited by, I believe, the the governing board is, I think it's SUFU, Society of Urodynamics and Female Urology. Pediatrics is its own subspecialty. That's generally two years. There's reconstruction and trauma, which is typically one year long. There's andrology and male sexual health. I think that's usually a year. And then there's fertility, which I think, I'm not sure how long fertility is. I think it's a year. And those are the general subspecialties. I guess neurourology is also its own subspecialty. I'm not, I'm not really actually familiar with any dedicated fellowships. I think that sometimes gets rolled into some of the other fellowships, but that's another um, area of subspecialization. What do you wish primary care physicians knew about what you're doing day in and day out to help, help their patients and your patients in the future? I think um, one of the things is that, you know, there are a lot more, there's a lot more technology and a lot more procedures to help patients now. And I, I commend, you know, the primary care doctors for starting people on medication and working up a lot of the urinary complaints and just to let them know that there's a lot of different things. Like, for instance, Botox. Botox is for, you know, patients that have frequency and urgency and it's indicated if you've failed, you know, typically two or more medications. And I think sometimes patients think that there's no solution or they're sort of stuck uh, with the medications um, and they don't know that there's anything else available. And I think people are always so surprised when they learn about their options. So just maybe getting them into the urologist sooner or, um, you know, not being afraid to just send over a patient to see if there's anything else we have to offer. What other specialties do you work the closest with? Um, I would say general surgeons, OBGYNs, and then, yeah, it's, it's mostly family practice and a lot of other like mid-level providers, PAs, NPs. I don't get a lot of referrals from other types of physicians. Are there any opportunities outside of clinical medicine for urologists? Some of them, I think, include, you know, speaking engagements, although like New Jersey is a weird state for that. There's laws that sort of cap what your income is for doing um, work like that. Um, you know, there's always the um, expert witness um, stuff. I think that's uh, a lot of urologists do that around here. Um, and then like all the normal stuff, you know, write books or consult. Um, what, what sorts of, of trials are, are urologists being ex expert witnesses at? Like just malpractice kind of stuff? Yeah, it's all it's all malpractice stuff. I haven't um, 
haven't really dug into it very much. Um, but I think the American Neurologic Association actually has an expert witness registry. You have to meet some requirements to be on it. You have to be out for a certain number of years and you have to be board certified. Mm. Um, but there's like a way to register and then, you know, you read all these things online, like people put, put their profiles up on LinkedIn and attorneys contact them (laughs) for, for their stuff. Um, so yeah, I, not something that I've gotten involved, um, with as of yet. Um, not sure I will. I, I'm not, I don't know. Okay. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into urology? I think um, a couple things. So I think that um, maybe one of the hardest parts of being a surgeon or your job is that you become extremely disappointed when something doesn't go according to plan or someone has like a complication. And I think dealing with that the most is probably one of the hardest parts of my job. Um because it, it's emotionally taxing. Um, so you sort of have to learn how to deal and, and cope um, um, with that. And then I think, you know, we had sort of talked before about when you, when you get out, you know, everyone's so, like, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and just ready to, like, soar and see all these patients and do all these procedures and stuff. And it, it just it takes time. Um, and it takes time to develop a rhythm and it takes time to develop finesse and what you've done 10,000 times as a chief resident that you could do with your eyes closed suddenly becomes the hardest thing, um, when you're in attending and nobody's <laughs> there and, and the safety blanket's gone and, and it's real. And I've yeah. had these discussions with other people and, um, you know, it just, it takes, it takes time. So I guess patience for, for the process, respect the process. What do you like the most about being a urologist? Um, I like, I like my patients. They're awesome. They're really great. I practice in a great area. They are just like the best. Um, and they, um, add to my job satisfaction a hundred percent. Um, you know, I come from a, pretty urban area in my training and it's it's like different there um and now I'm sort of like out in the community in the suburbs and um my patients come they show up they're like um they listen they take their medication it's awesome um and I love it and I just I think they're the best um and they they make my job they make it very enjoyable what do you like the least I think it's probably, um, besides charting, everybody's answer is charting. (laughs) I know that's true. I have a lot of (laughs) notes to finish after this. Um, I think it's, you know, it's a, it's, it's just, sometimes you feel a little bit helpless in your ability to help people because you're constrained by what insurances will cover or you give them a sample of medication and they're just elated and they're fixed. And then, you know, they have Medicare and Medicare won't pay for any of their meds. And, you know, that's an issue because people are on a fixed income and they can't afford these things. And I think that's really frustrating because you're always trying to like call the companies or get these auths through and, or order imaging that is clearly indicated for, you know, some oncologic process. And the reviewer on the other side of the phone, who you have no idea who they are, what their credentials are, um, if they even know 
what you're talking about and they just say that the patient can't get their scans and then you just have to go through appeals or you know do all that stuff and I think that's um that's not unique to any to to urology by any means um but I think that's pretty it's another annoying part of of the job is you just want to do the right thing and and help your patients and sometimes you know the the insurances make that impossible if you had to do it all over again, would you still be a urologist? <laughs> That's a pretty loaded question. <laughs> um, I think I would. I think I would. I think, um, you know, you sort of think, could I have done this or should I have done that? And I think, you know, again, on social media, you see um, these people with, you know, everyone's so happy after their abdominoplasty or their <laughs> Botox that they get in their face. And it's like, I think when it comes down to it, you have to do, you have to think about what complaints or complications you want to deal with. Like, do you want to deal with the person who gets the Botox and now is obsessed with the one millimeter difference in their eyebrows? Mm -hmm. Or do you want to deal with the person who's having a little bit of discomfort after you've operated on them for a kidney stone from their stent, but they know their stent's going to come out in a week. And I think it's just, you, you know, you go into medicine and, you kind of get stuck, right? You got a lot of loans to pay unless you're independently wealthy. And so do, do I wish I picked a different specialty? I don't think so. Um, you know, I, I don't think the grass is really ever always greener for, um, other people or people that aren't, are accepting cash only in their practices. And my husband and I have that discussion all of the time. Um, but we both agree that we're, we're probably in the right place. Any last words of wisdom for the med student listening to this or the pre-med student listening to this who may have their eyes open to urology now? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, stay interested, um, read as much as you can when you can, um, getting exposure early is key. Um, you know, if you are a medical student, it's all the normal things that you should do to match into a competitive specialty. So, um, learn, you know, the people who are on the faculty at your institution, get involved with research, meet the residents, you know, get that chairman's letter if you do have a department. So it looks good for, for your um, applications. Um, just try to study as much as you can for everything. Do as well as you can. Do as well as you can on your steps and um, you'll, you'll succeed. All right, there you have it again, Dr. Mary McHugh, a urologist for a year and a half out of training about what drove her to urology, what she likes about urology, and so much more. I hope you are enjoying these episodes. We have some more great episodes coming up for you. I know we had a little hiatus with episodes, but now we are back on track and have some more great episodes for you here to come. So don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to tell your classmates all about specialty stories and how they can subscribe to the podcast and learn about different specialists as well. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time as we talk to Dr. Nicholas Volpe, a chairman of ophthalmology. Mm -hmm.